Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are happy to welcome Jeff Luce back to the program. Jeff is a Young Voices contributor, and we've got a very timely topic to talk about. But first, Jeff, I'm going to ask for the sake of people who are meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, yeah it's good to be back. Um, my name is Jeff Luce. I'm a policy assistant at C3 Solutions, uh, which stands for the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions. So we're a 501c3 think tank uh, based in the D.C. area, and we focus on different climate, energy, and environmental issues. All right. So I don't know if anybody else has noticed, but, uh, boy, gas prices are up. In fact, I, I've, frankly, I've become a little bit obsessive about this. I'm always looking at the, the marquees to see, okay, how much is it up today? Everybody's feeling pain at the pump. And, of course, for politicians, that means the blame game is in full swing. And there's no shortage of politicians who seem to say, well, the problem here is that uh, corporate greed is causing these prices to be so high. You have a piece for National Review that says, no, really, that's not the case. Walk us through, first of all, why why politicians tend to blame corporate greed, and then let's talk about what, what really is leading to those high gas prices. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, the the reason why they blame corporate greed, I guess the, there's, there's just too many reasons. Um, I think it's a pretty easy scapegoat and it's easy to blame the big oil boogeyman, um, especially when you're not really quite sure how to fix an issue. Um, but yeah, like you had mentioned, there's a, there's quite a few progressive lawmakers who are blaming big oil, uh, for profiteering and, uh, purposely inflating their prices for gas. Um, and that's just simply not the case. It's really energy is a, a global, a globally traded commodity. So, the price of which is largely determined by global supply and demand, as well as refinery capacity. So one reason why we're seeing such an increase in prices is supply and demand, um, and mostly supply not being able to catch up with demand, largely due to COVID-19. So when the pandemic hit, uh, a barrel of oil was literally being traded for negative value. Um, And with that, uh, with that, a bunch of refineries also closed, which is a large contributor contributor to prices. Um, so once economies opened up, just supply wasn't able to keep up with demand with all these economies opening up, uh, and as well as refinery capacity and spare capacity. Also, just they couldn't keep up. So we're still feeling the effects of that even, you know, two years later. Okay. I, I mean, I get, you know, when, when the demand goes up, the price is going to go up as well. But if, if memory serves, it seems like the current administration from the very beginning, and I'm talking like within hours of taking office, was enacting policies that uh, reflected a desire to, um, how can I put this nicely, to, to shrink or to curtail the energy industry here in America. Now, was that all just my imagination, or has this been kind of a goal of not just the Biden administration, but the political left for some time? Yeah, and I would say it's even before President Biden got elected um, on the campaign trail, he guaranteed, you know, more than one time that he was going to shut down fossil fuels. And of course, once he was elected, one of his first acts was to uh, cancel the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and as well as putting a moratorium on new oil and gas leasing on federal lands. Uh, that mor- moratorium has since been lifted. Uh, but it's definitely been one political signal after another to show that, you know, American fossil fuels aren't long for the future, um, which, of course, that scared investors. That's also scared companies, because why would you invest in, you know, new infrastructure such as pipelines? Why would you invest in 
new refineries if you're not even sure that you know regulatory winds will allow you to stay open past the next five years. Well, and I, I know it was just a couple of weeks ago, it seems, that the president had some very strong words for uh, energy companies telling them, now you get out there and you start producing more energy and don't you dare charge more for it. It seems like some pr- pretty mixed messages. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And that's just another frustrating thing with the administration. Um, and another frustrating thing is the topic of climate change, which, of course, the administration has put front and center, which is definitely admirable. Um, but their attack on American fossil fuels has actually hindered their ability to lower global emissions uh, because American fossil fuels are produced much cleaner than, you know, anything overseas. Uh, so if if the administration were serious about lowering energy prices and lowering emissions, they would actually be empowering our domestic producers to get out and produce more oil instead of sending all these mixed messages politically and regulatorily. So I have to ask you this, Jeff, fossil fuels and, uh, and um, you know, environmental uh, kindness, I, I don't know another way to put this, basically addressing uh, climate change issues. Do, do fossil fuels have to go away in order to address those concerns about the climate? Or is there is there some area where you know, those uh, those on either side of this issue can meet in the middle and work towards, you know, clean energy, since we're clearly not quite ready for for a full step off into clean energy. Yeah, I would say we definitely still need fossil fuels, especially in the near to intermediate term. Um, uh, you know, for any durable climate solution to, to happen, you need energy to first be affordable and reliable or else consumers aren't going to want to transition uh, companies aren't going to want to invest in next generation technologies. So American fossil fuels, 100%, they have a role to play uh, in reducing emissions in America, but also overseas, like I had said before. They can displace dirtier Russian gas, which, of course, a lot of Russian gas has been cut off since they invaded Ukraine. Um, but it can also displace dirty Chinese coal or uh, oil produced in Saudi Arabia. Um, and also these energy companies have the energy know-how and the the capital, quite frankly, to invest and create these next-generation technologies. So really, it should be up to policymakers to find ways to work together to empower the private sector and energy innovators um, to move forward and and produce some low-emitting but reliable energy. I'm trying to understand for the life of me why anyone, and I'm talking from either the Democrats or the Republicans, would would want anything other than energy independence. It just seems that, um, I mean, look, I, I'm not I'm not trying to sing the praises of Russia here, but boy, they're in a strong position right now because they're not dependent on other countries for for their energy. But look at all the countries right now that are suffering as a result of sanctions placed on Russia. Look at how even the U.S., because of its its uh, lack of energy independence, is is now having to go and, and pretty much hat in hand, ask some of the worst regimes on the planet, hey, you know, could you guys produce a little bit more? Yeah, uh, that's definitely a fair point. Um, I think a lot a lot of times with this energy independence uh, debate is it's important to remember that we can't really truly be completely energy independent and completely self-sufficient. Uh, I mean, in 2019, we were technically energy independent because we were exporting more than we're importing, but we're still importing from Canada and Saudi Arabia. So with global energy or with energy, it's still going to be global no matter what. I mean, that's just the most efficient way to keep prices low for consumers. But with that being said, we still need to find a way to kind of hedge our hedge our bets with that. 
um, we shouldn't be completely reliant on Saudi Arabia um, or OPEC for that matter. Uh, and, and there's simple ways that I think that the Biden administration uh, can move forward and reduce prices. Uh, there's not much he can do in the short term just because it's such a, such a global commodity. But um, just, you know, investing in, in infrastructure such as pipelines, uh, refueling regulations such as the Jones Act. So that was signed into law in 1920. It's a super protectionist policy, but it basically mandates that any good being transported between U.S. ports, uh, that the crew be American and that the vessel be American. So that just increases prices extra, extraordinarily. Um, so, yeah, there's simple, there's simple fixes that I think can help consumers in the long run. Um, but I think no matter what, we're going to have to realize that uh, with any energy, we're going to have to work globally. Okay, and I mean, I'm not I'm not opposed to you know working within the the global market. In fact, frankly, it seems to me that that could actually promote some cooperation as opposed to it seems like there's there's a lot of lines being drawn right now that uh, you know I don't know I'd, I'd like to I'd like to see more cooperation and less uh, of, of the tribal approach that we're currently seeing. There is there anything that even approaches a quick. Uh, type of relief or is this something that's just going to have to, to play out over the long term yeah um as far as quick relief like i said there's there's not much he can do to like really lower prices like extra men uh, extraordinarily um you know i think one thing is like you're going to see that opec's going to start drilling more which should help with supply uh, and supply to uh, catch up with demand um i think reducing uh, regulatory barriers such as tariffs, for example, um, that would go a long way with, you know, keeping energy, not even just gas and oil affordable, but even solar uh, more affordable. So I think opening up markets for free trade um, and, like I said, maybe producing more signals, uh, maybe more consistent signals to the oil and gas industry that, you know, if you invest in these these pipelines, these refineries, we're not going to shut you down in two years when energy prices are low again. All right. We are talking with Jeff Luce. He is a Young Voices contributor. He's also a policy assistant at C3 Solutions. That's the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions. Jeff, I appreciate your take on this. I still feel the pain at the pump, but at least I feel like I better understand what's going on. Thanks again for being our guest. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Addison Hosner back to the show. He is an attorney and also a Young Voices contributor. And Addison, I'm going to ask you if there's any, I'm sure I've left some blanks here, but go ahead and fill in some of those blanks. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure thing, Brian. First, good to be back. Um, Yeah, got it down. I'm a, a Florida attorney. I'm based out of Orlando. I do a lot of civil litigation work, a lot of family law. Uh, so you can imagine I'm getting a lot of questions right now, thanks to some recent rulings. And uh, it's been busy. Things are going really swell. But in the meantime, I, I do a lot of writing on uh, you know social issues and trying to put forth, I think, sound public policy and 
objective and reasonable thinking. I'm looking at a piece that you've written for the Sun Sentinel, and it's on the topic of student loans. And boy, there's there's a subject that will bring up a lot of different reactions. But you have a fairly, I think you have a really nice perspective on this in that you're saying this is more than just an economic or a financial or even a political issue. There's actually a generational divide when it comes to student loans. Walk me through that. Right. So what kind of prompted this this topic to address the student loan issue from this angle is I've been seeing a lot of politicians in Congress. And, you know, I solo out uh, Representative Virginia Fox in my article. She's 78 years old and I have nothing against, you know, the older generations that are currently in Congress. But I have been hearing a lot of rumblings when student debt forgiveness is brought up, student debt reform is brought up. And I feel that there's been a disconnect between what they grew up with and what the reality is today. And when I did some digging and some research, I came to this, you know, findings that, you know, Representative Fox, when she was in college back in North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, when I adjusted all the costs for inflation just for tuition and fees, she paid about $10,000 for four years of education at UNC. Well, that same education today would cost a modern student $32,000 in state, but that's not including the technological fees. That's not including the cost of living increases, the food, you know, everything has gone up in price. And so when, when these Congress members are talking about student debt forgiveness and, and bashing on it, saying that the young kids today just need to work summer jobs, or maybe they should go to technical schools. I'm a believer in the American dream. And if we're telling kids that, look, we know you want to be a lawyer, but that, that requires a college degree and then requires three years of law school. That's not cheap. And a lot of students, like myself, don't have families that can foot the bill, but our families make too much to qualify for grants. So what is our option? Well, our option is either you don't go or you take out the student loans, as that's the only means to pay for your education. But if we're going to tell kids, well, it's not financially prudent for you to take out loans, so just give up on your dream. To me, that's not the American dream, then. We're lying to children. The American dream will not exist. So when I look at this issue, I see it as a generational divide. There's a definite uh, moment in time where the inflation rate of tuition cost started in the uh, late 80s, but around the 2000s is when it skyrocketed. And so a lot of millennials and uh, Gen Z, the, the generation even before the millennials, are being hit with this, where the baby boomers and to a lesser extent, the Gen Xers didn't have to deal with this as much. So that's the angle of the topic. I'm not advocating for or against anything, mainly trying to present uh, a more uh, social issue to this this problem. As you said, it's not just economical. There's there's another there's another angle to it. Yeah, there's definitely not an, uh, a level playing field as far as, um, you know, uh, economically what what each of these generations have faced um gosh i have a son who is uh, what is he 25 years old and uh, is is just completing his undergraduate work i don't know how he's done it but he has managed to make it through four years of you know pretty rigorous undergrad schooling he's uh, he's in biochemistry without taking out any student loans and, and maybe it's just he's an exceptionally hard worker. He has been working pretty much full time while going to school, which is a, a super tough road to hoe. But uh, he's also been able to put money aside because he wants to do undergraduate work abroad. And I'm still not sure how he's done it. I just I only well, offer this example up to show it can be done. But, you know, I'll, also I should probably point out and he's gone completely bald and has an ulcer. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> but he is the exception. And, and I do. I like you. I don't know how young people can can 
possibly undertake school without, uh, you know, either serious resources from their family or being willing to sign on the dotted line? You know, when it comes to undergraduate, I think there's a distinction that, that needs to be made. I very much like your son. I graduated with a very small amount of student loans, only about $4,000. And I went to an in-state public school in Florida, where Florida in-state tuition is very affordable. Um, my parents had done everything they could to steer me in that direction, prevent me from looking at private schools or from out-of-state schools that would charge me four, five, six times that amount. And by doing so, I was able to acquire scholarships. Well, my scholarships were not full rides. I still worked full time in undergrad and I was able to pay off uh, pretty much all my tuition and, and bills. The issue is now, though, is I've looked at that same tuition that I paid back in 2009 when I started my undergrad edu- education. It's it's doubled, essentially. And I look at kids today and the salaries are not keeping pace. And when I did some research on this, I found that the, the cost of college tuition is outpacing the rate of inflation by 171.5%. Wow. And the cost of college tuition at a public four-year institution has risen 179.2% over the last 20 years. That is not sustainable. You're talking about uh, inflation rates that now are blowing up more than we've seen in decades on top of college tuition inflation that is outpacing that, plus the just general costs are outpacing all of it together. So it's it's coming to a head. And when you have one point seven trillion dollars in debt held by about 43 million borrowers, that's substantial. And I think it's going to cause economic impacts for not just the younger generations, but the country in whole. When they realize when the when the older generations want to retire or sell their house, there's not going to be a market. No one can afford your house. We can't qualify for mortgages because we hold student loan debt and your debt to income ratio is thrown off. These are going to be social issues that we're going to have to grapple with. And so when we're talking about student debt forgiveness, I know it's a hot topic. Everyone wants to say, forgive it all or 10,000 or 50,000. I have proposed time and time again, I feel like a broken record and it's getting frustrating that I don't hear anything from Congress, but I think the interest rates is where you need to be looking. When you're putting a 7.2% interest rate on a $60,000 grad plus loan, because you can't afford law school, dental school, uh, architecture school, whatever it is without these loans. That compounding interest begins to supersede the principal. You're unable to pay it back, and it just continues to snowball. And that is the issue. I think if you curtailed interest, you wouldn't need to do this broad forgiveness. People would be able to then pay back their loans. But as it stands now, the interest rates prevent the principal from being touched, and you end up just paying on interest, which isn't going to get you anywhere. What are Um, some of the contributing factors um, to to the the skyrocketing rate of of tuition, I mean that's one. What was it? One hundred and seventy nine percent. There's got to mm-hmm. be more than one factor at work here. But what are some of the reasons why college tuition is, has gone up so much? Well, I go all the way back to when President Lyndon Johnson was in office. His whole presidency was really based on this war on poverty, and, and he had this idea that. To combat poverty, you you need to implement education. You need to allow those from minority communities and those who do not have a financial backing to attend college because it's through education they'll be able to land better jobs and make a life for themselves. Well, in 1965, he passed the bill that created federal student loans as we know them today. Um, from that date forward, it's been just this rapid increase in lenders taking advantage of the borrowers with these interest rates. The other problem is there's no backing by the school. The school has no obligation to the federal debt. And so when the school realizes we can raise our tuition by 6% every year and the federal government will still lend this money out to these students, regardless of the earning capacity of the degree, regardless of the graduation rates, regardless of even our accreditation, 
that is what's causing the drive up when there's no parameter there's no actual ceiling to where the government says no more we will not give more than fifteen thousand dollars a year for your your program the school goes why not why shouldn't i charge fifty thousand a year for a bachelor's in journalism even though we all know a journalism degree isn't going to make you more than thirty-five thousand a year, if that, out of college, wow. I know I have a journalism degree. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so you, you look at these these factors, and I really think it comes from the federal government getting involved in a, in a debt lending program that has no backing to it. And unlike mortgages or any other type of uh, secured asset, you can't default on a on a degree. If you default on your degree, what does the state take back? to pay that debt back. Nothing. There's nothing backing. There's no security. So we're now stuck with $1.7 trillion in debt that, frankly, um, unless it gets paid back, it's, it's just going to forever remain in the abyss. Okay, again, we are talking with Addison Hosner. He is a licensed Florida attorney based in Orlando and a Young Voices contributor. Where can people follow you on social media? Uh, I'm, I'm not all too active on social media uh, simply because I have a lot of noise. But if you really, really would like to, I'll occasionally tweet something out on Twitter at uh, A Hosner. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. And then, of course, if you want to send a comment to me on my website, uh, www.hosnerlaw.com. And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Joshua Crawford, who is a Young Voices contributor. And Joshua, I'm going to ask you, if you would, tell us just a little bit about yourself, some of the hats that you wear. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, I am the executive director of Pegasus Institute, which is a public policy think tank uh, located here in Louisville, Kentucky. Very good. Well, I, I'm looking at your article uh, published in National Review about how America needs dads more than ever. And uh, Joshua, I got to say, dads have kind of become unfashionable or uncool in a lot of ways. I'm trying to think of the last TV show or TV commercial or popular culture reference that didn't portray dads as either um, unnecessary or just basically some kind of doofus. Is this I mean, is this a trend that, that you have noticed as well? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Look, dads have been uncool for a long time, uh, but that's sort of the nature of fatherhood. Uh, but it's never made them uh, any less essential. Uh, I think what you see depicted in popular media now, though, is the sort of like bumbling, useless father, right? Um, the 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 man that we could sort of all do without, and that's what makes it particularly problematic, right? Uh, it's one thing if if dad's interests are are unhip, but uh, but this depiction of dads as um, as really non-essential and a burden, uh, I think, is very problematic. Yeah. Well, and, and there's a larger issue, as you point out in your article, that this is beyond just, you know, how popular culture views fathers. This actually translates into uh, where the dad is not uh, valued as an essential part of the home and family. Uh, there are some crises that tend to follow right along with that. Talk to me about uh, the, the fatherhood crisis in America. Yeah, the the likelihood of virtually every social ill is increased when a father is absent. And so that's everything from children growing up in poverty to um, teenage pregnancies for daughters uh, to a lack of academic achievement. But the area that I focus on in the piece and the area that is in some ways the most, uh, that stands out the most, is uh, it, with regards to public safety and, and public order. Um, 
kids who grow up, especially young men who grow up without fathers, are significantly more likely to join gangs. They're more likely to engage in criminal behavior and juvenile delinquency. Um, and with a remarkable amount, remarkable amount of attention on things like school shootings uh, and, and mass public shootings, uh, many of those individuals also came from either fatherless or abusive homes. Wow. Where did this trend begin, the the trend of fatherlessness? I mean, can is there a root cause or maybe several root causes that we can look to to where dads became less present in the lives of, of children? Yeah, this is something that's been going on in the United States for decades and decades now. Uh, unfortunately, the trend has been in a downward trajectory in terms of, of paternal participation and uh, an upward trajectory in terms of kids growing up um, in single parent homes, period. Uh, but when a child grows up in a single parent home, 83% of the time, it's a father absent home. Um, and there's a lot of reasons that contribute to this. Some of them are cultural, others are a result of, of policies that perhaps reward uh, not having a, a, a two parent household as a matter of be it uh, welfare policy or things like that. Uh, but regardless of, of sort of how we got here, uh, what needs to happen is a, a realization that this is a, a suboptimal outcome, right? And whether that's reversing policies that have already been put in place or taking some proactive steps around things like getting fathers more involved in their kids' lives, even if they're not in the home, um, it's an important public policy question, and it's one that contributes to, again, a, a remarkable number of the social ills that we see. Now, I notice in your article, you talk, uh, I mean, you start out talking about uh, the influence that uh, that your dad has had in, in your life. Do you want to visit that for just a moment, just to, to give kind of a personal example of, of what that's meant for you? Sure, yeah. I mean, we, we never had uh, a lot growing up. Um, my, my dad's a, a blue collar worker. My mom stayed home when we were kids and is, is now a preschool teacher. Um, so we never had a ton, but, uh, I saw my dad work his butt off every day. Right. And, and so just the example that that set was important. The time that he spent with us though, like, because he would work, he, he, he still gets up incredibly early in the morning gets to work, uh, you know, punches a clock, slides down the back of a brontosaurus at the end of the day kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but he still would, you know, he'd come to football practices and he never missed football games or, or basketball or baseball games. Um, and we were able to get away with remarkably little, right? The, the sort of like wait till your dad gets home uh, trope was all too common in my house. I'm the oldest of three boys. Uh, and and we did plenty of, of stupid things, but very rarely did those go unpunished. Um, and so in, in all likelihood, some of the more serious stuff probably got deterred because of that. Um, but but for me, it's always been like what I think sets me apart from some of the kids who grew up very similarly to how I did, except without a dad, was the fact that my dad was in the house. Um, and so now uh, I've got a one year old at home. And so I think about these questions a little bit more uh, frequently. And, and trying to think of how to raise her, uh, especially because, again, I'm the oldest of three boys and I've got a daughter. So it's it's just a different world. But uh, as a matter of public policy, uh, policymakers ought to be concerned with dads involved in their kids' lives. No, I'm, I'm with you on this. And I I appreciate you sharing this. I I have six kids 
all but two of whom have, have grown up and left home. And my goal with all of those kids has been for them to come to the realization at some point that I was on their side the whole time. And, and I tell them the reason I want them to understand that is because I think I can pinpoint the exact moment that I grew up and became an adult. And it was the day that I realized that all those times that my dad was there, you know, spoiling my fun and, you know, being my warden or so I thought he was really on my side. And, and when I realized it, I was shocked that I hadn't recognized it before. Couldn't believe I had missed that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for, for all the single moms out there that, that are trying their best, that are doing all that they can, um, there, there just isn't a substitute for that, right? Um, I think I mentioned this in the piece that, that single moms do heroic work, uh, but it, it just is not the equivalent of uh, having a dad in the home like that. Talk to me, uh... Joshua, talk to me about in those less than ideal situations, maybe maybe there's a, you know, there's a single parent trying to do their best to raise kids. What are some of the ways that uh, that the people around them can step up and provide that uh, that influence that that dads can bring to the equation? Do, Do you have any thoughts on on how that can take place? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially for young boys, uh, a male mentor who is not a father can still be uh, a valuable thing in their lives, whether that, that be a coach or a teacher or a family friend. Um, and, you know, again, the sort of optimal outcome here is like two parents in the home, you know, borderline leave it to beaver-esque, right? But uh, in circumstances in which that's not possible or or just not likely because uh, mom and dad either never were married or or simply can't work things out, even if dad's not in the home, being involved in a meaningful way not just seeing those kids regularly, but being involved in those kids' lives in a meaningful way uh, goes a long way. Yeah, I I think that uh, uncles and, and, and others, you know, can, can step up and help with that. And I would hope that people are looking for those opportunities. You mentioned in your article uh, about a group of dads who, who saw a problem in, in this Louisiana high school system. Tell me about what the problem was and how they addressed it. Yeah, so the the school had had a bunch of fights over a pretty short period of time, and they weren't just sort of like two kids fighting in the cafeteria. They were large groups, and and, uh, some kids were going home and basically didn't feel safe in the school. And so a bunch of dads sort of band together and formed this this group that they called Dads on Duty. And, you know, part of it was to just have sort of a physical presence in the school, but part of it was that, like, there's just nothing quite like your dad or a dad or a father figure telling you to hurry up and get to class. You know, there, there's just sort of really no substitute for that. And so these men uh, got a lot of national attention, got a lot of sort of near universal praise for what they were doing. Um, but it's, it's those types of things that even in these sort of suboptimal circumstances where men can step up and can, can help improve the sort of base needs of a child, like the safety of going to school. You know, I applaud that as well, just from the standpoint of I know that uh, the easy answer is, well, what we need is more resource officers, more police or at least more government authority figures. But it's nice when a non-government authority figure can walk in there and have real authority among those those uh, youth and uh, and do it without, you know, the threat of, of coercion that invariably accompanies whatever the state is involved in. Yeah, I can't remember exactly where I heard this, but I'm going to steal it from someone. It was somebody was given a talk. And basically ask the question like uh, of the audience, like how many of you grew up afraid of the police? And there's a smattering of hands that go up. 
Um, and then somebody asked the question, how many of you grew up afraid of your mom or dad? And virtually everybody's <laughs> hand goes up, right? And, and so, you know, you, you, you take that to its logical conclusion in a circumstance like this. Like, yeah, there's a difference when it's a, a disinterested government official, like a, a law enforcement officer, than if it is like, that's your dad or that's the dad down the street or that's your friend's dad kind of thing uh, that I think uh, kids just respond to in a way that is, is positive. All right. We've been talking with Joshua Crawford. He is a Young Voices contributor and the executive director of the Pegasus Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Joshua, where can people follow you and your work? PegasusKentucky.org. Kentucky spelled out, not just KY. Um, and Pegasus Institute or Pegasus Kentucky on all of your social media. Welcome back. This is our final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Benjamin Iyanian back to the show. Benjamin, great to catch up with you again. For folks meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Um, thanks for having me on. As always, Brian, it's always a fun discussion. Um, I just graduated college a couple of months ago, I'm back home in Virginia at the moment, and Pretty soon, going to be prepping for the LSAT to because uh, I'm planning on going to law school, and I've been writing about politics now for almost a year. Well, congratulations and and best wishes for that uh, future path forward. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at an article you wrote for the AmericanConservative.com, the Democrats' misguided gun control bill, and I'll admit. This is one of those issues that kind of gets my blood pressure up just because I get so sick of, uh, oh, we got to do something. And a new bill is, is proposed every time some tragic event uh, dominates the news cycle for a while. Tell me a little bit about the, the gun control bill, what's in it, and uh, tell me why this legislation it really is, is dubious in terms of its ability to, to stop gun violence. Yeah, I, I share your frustration. I think every time there's a high profile shooting in the news, people jump to, you know, we need to legislate. Um, and everyone's so certain that 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 certain gun control measures would eradicate the problem. And uh, luckily, this House bill that I wrote about, you know, will not become law. Um, but a couple of the things in it were really striking to me. I didn't understand why there was a focus on large capacity magazines. Um, we've seen bans on large capacity magazines in other states um, that have really high levels of mass shooting still. And there's always the ability of shooters to bring multiple magazines when they want to commit a heinous act. Um, and I, I provided two examples in my article. The shooter at Virginia Tech in 2007 had 17 magazines for his handguns. Almost all of them held 10 rounds. Um, the bill would have banned um, any magazine that held more than 15 rounds. Um, most of his held 10. One of the Columbine shooters in 99 brought 13 magazines into the school and all of them carried 10 rounds and both were incredibly tragic events. Um, another thing I found peculiar was there's a proposal to raise the age in which you have to, per you can purchase a rifle or a shotgun from 18 to 21. Um, and since this was a response to school shooting, I was really confused as to what, you know, made lawmakers jump to a conclusion that that would help, especially since the median age of school shooters is 16. 
and 70% of school shooters are under the age of 18 already. And so moving that age up to 21, I don't see how that would, you know, curtail um, the issues we're seeing. And furthermore, you know, just the attention on rifles doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Um, Rifles like the AR-15, they're involved in just 3% of firearm homicides um, per year. I mean, that's a 2020 uh, statistic from Pew Research. And handguns are still by far the most common weapon used in mass shootings. And so if we look at AR-15s or rifles in mass shootings, which are already a tiny percentage of gun violence in the first place, um, since since rifles aren't used nearly as commonly as handguns in mass shootings, that means that deaths in mass shootings from rifles is a small fraction of 1% of gun deaths in the United States every year. And so I just find the I just find the focus to be misguided. You know, something you point out in your article is that uh, – the, the the reason why citizens, you know, the average person needs to have access to uh, whatever weapon it is, whether it's a military pattern rifle with a regular capacity magazine or whatever, has nothing to do with sporting or hunting. And yet that seems to be the only allowable parameters in which those who are trying to pass these laws will, will have the discussion. Well, you don't really need something like this for deer hunting. Talk to me about uh, the thinking that uh, that was behind the founders uh, you know, construction of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights that, that shows they weren't thinking about deer hunting or sporting events when they when they were talking about the right to keep and bear arms. It's, it's interesting. Um, when you listen to public debates on this issue, you hear a lot of gun control advocates start with, I understand people like to hunt, but and that's like it's a common starting point in the discussion. And it has nothing. My, my belief in the Second Amendment has absolutely nothing to do with people's you know, affinity or, or lack thereof for hunting. Um, George Mason, you know, one of our founding fathers, said that to disarm the people is the best and most effective way to enslave them. And I think history has provided a lot of examples that that assertion is actually true. Um, Like slaves were prohibited from owning firearms and then following the civil war, there were a lot of, you know, different tactics used to bar black individuals from owning firearms, whether it was not wanting to recognize them as citizens, therefore they didn't have the right, or there were facially neutral laws that came about later, which basically tried to make it really expensive to buy a gun. So that would make it harder for black individuals in the United States to own them at the time um, in the you know 19th and early 20th century. And then in you know Nazi Germany, there was a gun registry created in the early 30s, which the Nazis used to first disarm their political opponents. And then in the late 1930s, um, police ordered German Jews to turn in their firearms. And it was really easy for them to know who wasn't turning in their firearms because there was a registry. Um, And then the Holocaust ensued in the next decade. And so, you know, you can see how that opened the door for an atrocity. And then I personally am Armenian. um, And so some of my ancestors did unfortunately die during the Armenian genocide um, in the early 20th century. And Armenians um, either needed permission to own a firearm at first, and then once World War I started, um, the deportations began, which were death marches for Armenians, and they were ordered to turn in their firearms. Um, And if they didn't, then it was punishable by death. If they tried to resist with their arms, it was punishable by death. And if people tried to hide them, they were tortured into confessing where 
their firearms were. And so the Armenian people were disarmed in the carrying out of the Armenian genocide. And it's interesting to me that people these days were so polarized and were so people are so fearful of what the other side would do if they held power. And I find it really ironic that people don't feel the need to keep in bear arms if they're so scared. I'm not saying I share the same fear of people who disagree with me. I'm just saying so many people disagree so fervently with other people and are scared of their views. And if that's the case, I don't understand why they would be comfortable giving up firearms. Well, and as much as the Uvalde school shooting is being used as justification, well, this is why we need to get these uh, these rifles out of our out of our communities. It also provided a very vivid example of how even with the police on the scene within minutes there were lives that were unnecessarily lost because the the state did not go in and protect those those kids and their teachers. And the the lesson isn't to, you know that all police are bad. The lesson is really when it comes to protecting what's near and dear to you, that responsibility is going to fall to you first and foremost. Absolutely, I agree with you. You know, and and even in the in the Parkland shooting in Florida years ago, we saw an issue with a police officer fleeing the scene instead of intervening. And so you can't always account. Um, or count on law enforcement to, you know, save the day. So, you know, pe- people make mistakes. Um, I think what happened in um, Uvalde was an egregious mistake. I mean, I, I don't understand how they could stand out there for so long with parents pleading to go in and do something, parents wanting to do things themselves. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, it, it does fall on you to protect yourself and what's near and dear to you. You can't always count on you know, law enforcement. So under those circumstances, that uh, military pattern rifle looks less like you know, an implement of evil, and it looks more like a life preserver, whether it's from government aggression or criminal aggression. You know, a person who has such a rifle and the training and you know, the, the will to use it to, to defend innocent life, I think is going to be better off than the person who's just purely defend, de- dependent rather upon the state to, to swoop in and save them in their moment of need. I agree with you. And, and, and like I pointed out earlier, the, you know, focus on, on, on rifles doesn't make sense based off of the data. And, and we had a, an assault weapons ban, you know, in the nineties, whether or not it was actually effective in, in removing assault style weapons is, is something up for debate, but something criminologists agree on. The consensus is that it had, you know, little to no effect on overall crime, on gun deaths, on lethal, on lethality of gun crime more generally. And its effect on mass shootings, um, the, the, this, the data apparently is inconclusive experts, you know, have come up with conflicting results. And so, at the end of the day, I just I don't understand why such a hard focus on these rifles, besides from the fact that they look scarier than a handgun. Um, but other than that, I don't really understand it. All right. Let's uh, let's tell people where they can follow you on social media, where they can follow your writings. Well, the best uh, place to follow me is on Twitter at Benjamin Iyanian. Um, you can also find me on Instagram with um, at Biyanian13. That's where I post all of my writings and podcast appearances. So uh, please check those out. And um, I write everywhere. So don't just look at one publication, follow those. And that's how you can keep up with me. All right, Benjamin, great to catch up with you once again. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. 